Hit it. Hey, Tom. Do you know why the hyperparameter brought a ladder to the deep learning conference? So it could do a grid search? It's because it wanted to find the best step size to success. It's a smart parameter. It's very good. Um, welcome to the retort. Today, we're going to talk about a techno optimist manifesto. Um, Tom is something that he needs to share in general, a academic critique. And if we have time, I'll share my critique of Stanford as whatever the Center for Research on Foundation Models continues to do strange things. So to set the stage, Mark Andreessen, VC guy, has stated for a while he's working on this manifesto for why we should accelerate technology, particularly in the light of AI. And there's this whole community might be a generous term on Twitter that goes by e slash ek ek. They're the accelerationists, and this actually has like a, I, I'm trying to I'm realizing I need to give more context, but this actually has a lot of weight in the discourse around AI. Like a lot of the general froth on Twitter is from these people that are like, let's keep building, let's accelerate the progress, and this really originated as a community when some of these pause letters were getting passed around to pause all the AI research. And they're generally grounded in certain long-term views that may or may not reflect reality. And we'll kind of go through some of the things that they claim and how it re relates to what actually happen is happening. What may be the cause of this as in like, why are, why is once again, technology and like praising technology as the thing that's likely to save us coming into the forefront so like what are the counterweights to that and kind of what you should think about this when you see this thousands of words kind of looney tunes from mark Andreessen. so uh, <laughs> tom any other context you want to get before I, I just figured you might just start eviscerating it without a lot of context so i wanted to survive to provide this it's all weights and counterweights with you optimization people <laughs> um yeah i mean i read the whole thing which was fun i wish i'd had a glass of wine as i was reading it it was it was that kind of document i mean i enjoyed it it was entertaining i started i think i texted nate this because nate you're actually the one who sent it to me i guess shortly after it dropped uh and as i was reading it for the first maybe third of it, I had this feeling of like becoming progressively fatigued of just, I I feel like I've seen just flavors of this kind of writing before. And it's a document that kind of prides itself on, you know, not really having what I would call like a thesis that's backed up with like, certainly not literature. Well, I was actually <laughs> going to say evidence, but yeah, so certainly literature um, it's, it kind of prides itself on just its, its beliefs, which is fine. It's just, it's, it, and what is it saying? And are there examples of documents that people may know like it? Well, it's a statement of beliefs 
it seems primarily and you can i think if you just search the document i believe yeah. we believe 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 and it, every sentence starts with we believe right. other than like the first or last of the second and it's fine to believe things right it's just um i guess part of it is is it what does it mean to believe these things and maybe more if there's a critique that i'm giving here i'm not even sure that's the word i want to give to it but what does it mean to believe these things in sequence and in total it is divided up into sections it's an interesting conversation. And I did, I enjoyed it more as I went farther through it. I can specifically say like which parts of it made me kind of, uh, I, I perked up, I guess. there Because there are parts of this document I think are interesting uh, and worth a discussion about. There are, I think the earlier parts of it are more just kind of throwing down some kind of gauntlet of simultaneously claiming that sort of technology, whatever that is, is completely transformative in a way that we're almost beyond morally obligated. We're kind of compelled to advance or else as a species, we, we sort of die or atrophy, which I think is the same thing as dying on this perspective. Uh, but at the same time, it's not political. There's this sense of this process seeming kind of both inevitable and necessary but also good uh, you know something that you should you should join you should throw your weight behind if you're reading this and you know there's another manifesto i'm thinking of that's also very much written this way i don't know if nate can guess which one that is uh, i'm not being really secretive here the communist manifesto uh for the for our you know erudite listeners who are familiar with that document uh all has a very similar flavor right of it it has a series of of claims sometimes they're beliefs although i think actually the claims in that document are you know many of them are actually much better backed up i think than than this one uh that are just about the state of the world you know and about the state of the where, where the world's going extrapolating from current trends uh specifically on the exponential trends uh in the state of the world but it also is very much a kind of clarion call for saying, and we should throw our weight behind this process, that this process is both inevitable but somehow desirable. And I think that's, you know, to use a word that I guess I often use on this podcast, that's there's an inherent kind of alchemy there in conflating the is and the ought nature of certain features of reality. Uh, and And that's, I think, the power of this document is that it's, it ends up being very fun to read because what it's claiming, it it claims what it's claiming is both kind of obvious and just matter of fact, and yet fundamentally transformative and desirable at the same time. So it gets kind of fun as you go along because, at least for me, you get these kind of harebrained sentences that it's just like, where does this come from? And then I had to remind myself like, oh, that's because Peter Thiel said it. That's where it comes from. <laughs> and I can I can flag parts of this document that I think are kind of you know, just sort of copy-pasted from other documents that, you know, Mark agrees with, which is fine. Um, I do think attribution would have been useful. I also maybe don't think he cares. So, you know, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting tapestry of claims that don't have to be related to each other, but that very much are in the structure of this document and that add up to something uh, kind of, I mean, that it's not a secret that I, I don't think I like agree with this vision uh and i can point out where my fault lines are for what i think is is problematic about it but yeah i think actually large parts of the document 
are quite interesting and worthy of discussion or debate, or in my case, sometimes agreement. I think you should go into the details. I think this is one of those things where in the long term, like this argument always is going to end up looking right because the arc of history is going to be so defined by technology, but it kind of will squash a lot of stories and realities along the way. I don't know if you have examples through actually reading the details of this. It just feels like in some of the communications are like taking such sides. It's like, and we've ended up at the point where most people in engineering roles, blah, blah, are no longer optimists. And he like says the default of a modern engineer should be to be a techno optimist. And I actually think most people are, I think it's just kind of conflated with some maybe like media narratives rather than realities. I think most people trained outside of computer science are like technological optim at least most tech like engineers outside of computer science. Like they've been trying to build things like chatting with my brother. It's like I I'm an electrical engineer. He's a chemical engineer. It's like he was working on batteries. It's like I was working on electronic devices that are trying to like <laughs> change how you could build in the world. It's like I feel like to do stuff like that you have to believe. So this might be some like Silicon Valley computer science cognitive dissonance really implying it too yeah i think that's right so the last part of that seems key to me there's a difference between being an optimist when you're building technology which i maybe agree is necessary or at least extremely useful because otherwise you get caught in like a gumption trap in terms of like can i actually get this thing to work at all and so having a certain spirit of optimism behind its construction i mean th this document starts with a quote one of the quotes is from Thomas Edison, and Thomas Edison has another famous quote where he says something like, I didn't, you know, fail to make a light bulb. I discovered 99 ways to not make a light bulb or something like that. That's that's optimism almost to the point of being um, functionally insane. But sometimes you kind of have to be that kind of crazy to really make a transformative engineering breakthrough. But there's a difference between being an engineering optimist and being a technological optimist in the way this document is, like, assuming and narrating in the sense that the optimism in this document is saying technology is good for the world, it's good for society, it's good for humanity, it's good for markets, it's good, I mean, it's good for everything, basically. Um, there's pretty much no downside. That's not the same kind of optimism. That's a very different flavor of, I mean, it's kind of more of a messianic impulse, honestly. It's a, it's a prophetic attitude towards the world where you are revealing some kind of truth that when brought to the world both illuminates the truth and improves the world. It, it lifts it up into this new state. I mean, the document is full of, I mean, I just have kind of random passages in front of me right now. I mean, speaking to this, just the sections of this, um, this document, I mean, there's a whole, the whole section on markets, for example, uh, it's actually one of the maybe somewhat longer sections but it basically is a very, a very similar statement about the kind of liberatory capacity of markets and the transformative capacity of markets, which is, you know, actually he credits Hayek in this case, which is interesting. He says, Hayek's knowledge problem overwhelms any centralized economic system. That's debatable, um, but obviously, you know, many... What is Hayek's knowledge there's problem? A, well, there's a, famous, um, there's a famous paper called The Use of Knowledge in Society by this economist, Hayek. Uh, I, I believe it came out in 1950, but don't quote me on that. But also, this is a podcast. I guess we can figure out when it would happen. It was after World War II, but not long after. And it's a paper where Hayek argues 
very simply that uh, markets have informational advantages over central planning because there is no central planner. And he's implicitly, of course, like the, the implicit comparison is the Soviet Union here. So imagine the Soviet Union and, you know, let's just say the United States are competing to try and uh, launch some some new kind of uh, production uh, or some kind of good or service. And they're just trying to go about doing that. Hayek is sort of saying the way in which that plays out in a free market is not only qualitatively different than in central planning, it's actually going to be better over the long run. And the reason it's better is that markets are able to leverage kinds of information that a central planner is never going to be well positioned to do. Uh, there are famous lines from this essay where I wasn't actually going to talk about this, but I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, there are lines in that paper where he talks about the man on the spot and how the man on the spot, by which he sort of means, you know, imagine somebody kind of wearing an overcoat in January, walking down the streets of Manhattan, looking in the windows of a shop, trying to decide uh, whether or not he can, you know, get over the fight he just had with his wife by buying her like a new pair of Furmans or something like that. Uh, Hayek's point is that that kind of problem is much easier to solve or much more tractable in a free market because markets have distributed sellers and distributed buyers. The buyers know what they value and how much they value and how that changes over time because they're the buyer. And the seller is able to be sensitive to that to the extent that they can leverage like the price signal to basically have a dynamic way of capturing the degree to which different people are willing to pay for a certain kind of good according to a certain kind of quality. And so his argument basically is that mar free markets in, in this kind of sense of the term that permit distributed information to flow, to be collected, and to be implicitly amalgamated within price for different goods. Do we think this actually applies with AI? Because like, is, is AI going to be such a centralizing force where scale is so dominant and capital is so dominant that like, it's not really a free market? If it costs $100 billion to train your model, it's, there, aren't that many, there aren't that many players. And it's like almost, it's almost by like laws of nature of monopoly, which is probably very different. Like there's arguments to be made that that's where AI is going, which is very different than a free market. <laughs> uh, yeah, you said it better than I could have, I think. Yes. I mean, that's exactly what I think the risk is here is that if anything, if anything, it's almost like this is provocative, but it's almost like AI proves Hayek wrong <laughs> because what AI shows us is that the degree to which or the way in which this kind of distributed market ecosystem has informational advantages can often either be simulated by a, a single arbitrarily capable or intelligent AI or can just be simulated or replaced by a single company that has internal two-sided markets and that's how its algorithms work and so it can just optimally match you know people based off of whatever criteria it wants internally so it's not really clear that you can't simulate features of the world Hayek was pointing to as needing a market. You could just you could just achieve that any number of technical ways that just weren't feasible at the time because the infrastructure didn't exist to do so. But there's a whole vein of work in kind of political economy now uh, that is arguing exactly this point, which is that the platform economy 
breaks a lot of the foundational assumptions in this case of what we would call neoliberal economics. This idea that you somehow need comp- comp- competitors in a market to for this kind of efficiency to work at scale. You could argue the entire point of a platform is to is to just you know circumvent that that whole that whole idea. Uh, and in fact, you could literally argue that Amazon's business model is sort of like a response to that essay and sort of saying like, oh yeah, these are great features. Let's just all do this in house. <laughs> we can just do that. And so um, that you can extrapolate that as you will. Anyway, I think we're getting a bit far afield from the um, the essay here. I know, like, what do you think about the acceleration of AI movement broadly? It, it, it's so funny how it emerged generally just out of like people being frustrated with the AI safety community. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I have my own frustrations with the AI safety discourse. I don't, my sense is that you should always look as much as you can beneath the words that are being bandied about to the underlying sentiment, to the underlying temperament. And in many ways, the underlying sentiment between these groups, from what I have seen, seems very similar to me. Because there is a fixation on abstractions a fixation on abstract capabilities, abstract models, abstract features, abstract learning techniques. And there's really just this kind of dance almost on the head of a pin between do you fear those things or do you love those things? You know, sort of which side is your libido sort of on, so to speak? Do you have a negative relationship or a positive relationship with it? I mean, I've looked at the memes. I've looked at many of the tweets. I've looked at, you know, some of the writings. It, it reads very similar to me, honestly. There's the same kind of belief that technology has and will bootstrap us into a fundamentally different state of being. And there's really just a question of how close to the precipice is it okay to get? Uh, and should you put on the brakes or put on the gas, which really that's, that doesn't strike me as that different. So it's, it's kind of funny that the positioning online as this being a very distinct kind of flavor of movement, I think is a bit of a red herring because at the end of the day, these people are so much more like each other than they are like, frankly, you know, normal people, <laughs> uh, that it's not really clear to me what the, um, the stakes are. Yeah. So you're saying like only the extremely technocratic have even taken aside it's like most people don't care about pauses or accelerations i think they both including people developing if i were to my perception is that both communities conflate the means and the ends in the sense that if technology is a means to some end both communities seem kind of pathologically fixated on the means as its own end and so we should either dominate the means as our end or we should kind of embrace it to transform ourselves and sometimes they're even in agreement about that it's more just like where do you establish the ground on which you stand insofar as that's true and i think neither community really knows the ground on which it stands and so it's just very hyper intellectually concerned with criteria that certain particularly smart people seem to endorse and so you get kind of similar social dynamics in both communities for that reason. Um, the personalities might be somewhat different, but really the 
the resulting structure is is the same. I do want to emphasize. So of course I was, as you know, loyal listeners will know, uh, particularly excited uh, to see the discussion of intelligence in this essay. This is the first time that artificial intelligence comes up in the essay. So I did want to make sure we get to this part where it says, you know, he he describes we believe it. we we believe also the we is interesting here. That's like a whole other conversation. But he says we believe intelligence is in an upward spiral. First as more smart people. <laughs> first as more smart people around the world. Yeah. When you really get into the close reading, it's quite weird. Are recruited into the techno capital machine, which has already been covered through Marcus. So he's like, as we've already agreed that this is amazing. And so they're getting sucked into, into that. Second, as people from form symbiotic relationships with machines into new cybernetic systems, such as the, the, the analogies here are great, such as companies and networks, you know, just and so on. <laughs> And then third, that's really the cybernetic system we're talking about. Yeah. Third, as artificial intelligence ramps up the capabilities of our machines and ourselves. So, of course, AI is never really defined in this essay. This is the first time the words artificial intelligence are used. He just sort of gives it as a third example of what this upward, upward spiral means. So, to summarize this, the upward spiral has three parts markets, what I would seem to call cybernetics, I guess, which is this human machine interface, organizational interface. And then third is just AI, you know, just whatever that is. Uh, two sentences later, he says, of course, what, you know, this is where we strike gold. <laughs> we believe artificial intelligence is our alchemy, our philosopher's stone. We we are literally making... Does philosopher's stone... Okay, we yeah. are literally making sand think is how it ends. Do we yeah. have, like, is there another meaning of the Philosopher's Stone other than Harry Potter? Like, what Oh, I absolutely. I mean, it's, it's I, we should briefly, yeah, I should, well, so yeah, so the, the Philosopher's Stone is in Harry Potter, and in Harry Potter, it's actually a fair representation of it. I mean, obviously, this doesn't exist, so for those leaders out there to understand, it's not, well, it's not possible, uh, it's not real, <laughs> but the Philosopher's Stone was considered the sort of end goal of medieval alchemy in particular. So what the Philosopher's Stone was, was meant to be a, well, it's an object, it's a tool, it's a transmutation device, basically, that makes it possible to perform magic, specific, specifically things like eternal life, things like transmutation of elements. So not just matter, but elements. And that's the distinction from like chemistry is that, you know, we're, we're still in like earth, air, fire, water world here in terms of like, what are the most basic components of reality? And can you transmute those things and have control over how you, how you transmute those things? Um, there's a few other properties of the Philosopher's Stone as well, uh, but it kind of depends on which alchemist you ask at that point. I think they all agree those are the two key ingredients of it. So kind of mastery of time and mastery of matter is sort of um, the way you should think about this here. Um, I think the last line, we are literally making Sand think. I mean, this is significant. He's clearly like, if you actually, I did check, if you go to his Twitter, the last line in his byline is let's make Sand think. So it's kind of, again, you get that kind of clarion call. But, you know, literally what he's saying here, when it, when we make Sand think, Sand is, right, like he he's just saying silicon. We're, we're taking raw silicon and we're organizing it into something that can do the most rarefied 
thing that any piece of matter can do, which is become intelligent. So it's that kind of like this, you know, cosmic grasp of like scalar understanding of what reality can be from completely inert to completely intelligent. And so AI is literally the expression of the philosopher's stone in this case, because it both is that transmutation. And as he says, I think it's actually in the, well, it's the very next sentence. We believe AI is best thought of as a universal problem solver. And we have a lot of problems to solve. So again, it's, it's, <laughs> this is definitely like the halfway mark where he starts to get unhinged. <laughs> it is a, yeah. I mean, how can you not love AI if you're an accelerationist? Because it's not just a technology. It's, and then I might have issue with the semantics in this essay on that regard. It's not just a technology. It's the kind of technology of technologies. It's the thing that when you have it enables you to do any other thing and build any other technology. Well, this, this is one of the reasons why people say that AI is so different than other technological revolutions, because let's say that AI is the first technology that has the great potential to redefine what it means to be human or to like put, put risk at that, which I don't know if he's going in that direction, but that's like something implicit to this probably, or it's at least related. Yeah. I, so I don't agree with that. Maybe he believes that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's disruptive. I think it is. Tra I think it is transformative. It is transformative in ways that are probably unprecedented. But also, the printing press was transformative in ways that were unprecedented. And there are other, like what what you know, humanists or philosophers or historians might call epical trans technologies. Epical technologies in the sense that they alter the horizon of what it means to be human. It's not the first technology to do that. Okay, language did that. <laughs> Writing did that. The printing press does that. And when I list those technologies, those, those have certain things in common, right? It's an entirely new medium for understanding and expression. And I think that AI does have the potential to become that. I don't know that it's there yet, but part of the, you know, the hype and the sexiness of, I guess, this essay or what it's leaning into is this idea that we can now readily imagine that that is on the horizon now. And that's that's exciting. I'm not going to deny that it's exciting. I think that it's just these terms are never really defined in a way that would make this essay seem like it's actually heading in the realm of something like predictions, which again makes this essay feel very different than a lot of like, I guess, the EA discourse in particular or people who are trying to predict when AGI will happen. There are no like concrete predictions in this essay. It's much more self-consciously visionary. I think for that reason, it's much more honest, actually, in some ways, about the underlying spirit that also animates that work is basically just a belief that it's going to happen. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. And a lot of the other stuff is just gravy in terms of like how much weight you put on certain metrics of like how you evaluate capabilities and progress. Yeah, that's, that's well said. I think it's... I think that, that kind of distinction between forecasting and <laughs> willing into existence is, is manifesting. Is, it, yeah, and manifesting is a good word for it, is what the communities are doing. And that's, I don't know, you have to like 
give some credit to this guy that writes this up. I do. That way. I do give him credit. And that's that's why after the first third, I started to like it more and more. Because I think actually he is giving voice to things that many people in those communities are either embarrassed by or repressed or are not comfortable saying in public. And Mark just goes there. He's not afraid. And you have to admire that somebody who's really honestly saying what they think because I do think this essay is sincere and whenever you write something you should you should try to be sincere in what you write uh, at least in your intent and it is you know there's been a lot of I, I've I don't really follow the kerfuffle very closely but I've seen that there is some kerfuffle over this the enemy section I'm not sure Nate if you actually got that far oh yeah I, I saw this this is this is wild essentially he goes on a list of like the equivalent of <laughs> find the following people, but for sub communities that are in the way of his ideals, which is honestly respect for putting it down again. It's like the same thing. Um, <laughs> we can just read it. It's good. It's worth reading. Tr- I, trigger warning, I agree. We didn't go over this in advance, but it's worth reading out some of these. Some of these we things. have enemies. Our enemies are not bad people, but rather bad ideas. Very good place to start this with like we tom and i agree with that sentence our enemies are not bad people but bad ideas our present society has been subjected to a mass demoralization campaign for six decades i want to come back to that number i don't really like that's hilarious to include <laughs> against technology and against life under varying names like existential risks sustainability esg don't know what that one exactly is, I could guess. Sustainable development goals, social responsibility, stakeholder capitalism, precautionary principle, trust and safety, the spicier ones come, tech ethics, risk management, degrowth, the limits of growth. Uh, of course, what, what what I found hilarious here is the fact that, you know, two of these different I, camps that I've well, spent so much blood, sweat, and tears navigating myself between and trying not to be pigeonholed into following are both enemies both include <laughs> yeah just just letting this continuing yeah. the enemy section this demoralization campaign is based on bad ideas of the past zombie ideas many derived from communism disasters <laughs> oh, then and now that have refused to die <laughs> like the com like just putting the communism link in kind of for the lols is pretty yeah funny but yeah i think it is yeah. meaningful for the ai community to realize that both like existential risk and safety and tech ethics are included because those are the kind of polls where people are pushed in the academic sense to kind of categorize their work but there really are other options like those communities have pretty set ideals and like how your work should be framed and it's not the only way to approach trying to do good for the world and i don't necessarily agree that techno optimism is a thing that makes for good ai systems as a principle but there are other things than existential risk and tech ethics. So then I have something to respond to say to that, of course, but I, I do want to emphasize, I think, what's key here. The next sentence, I think, is actually the most important one in the whole essay. Our enemy is stagnation. That's that's all actually he means by all those previous labels. I would even, like, make it even simpler. His enemy is, our enemy, is anything slowing this process down. Because the process is inevitable, and it's also good. So the worst thing you can do is just try and slow it down. And it doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't matter what you believe. If you're doing anything to even imply touching the brakes, that's bad. That's a bad idea. That's the worst thing 
anyone could imagine doing. And the reason that's significant here is that his enemy is just anybody who isn't willing to do alchemy, who isn't willing to pierce behind the veil of reality and vibe off of whatever's there. That's that's what he's saying. And again, to refer back to his Twitter bio, which I think in Mark's case is appropriate. <laughs> I think that this is sort of capturing the tone. He has another line I found illuminating, Shoggoth the Disciple. This is sort of a deep <laughs> cut. Shoggoth, of Mark's course, Twitter is a... personality is great. Are you followed by Mark? Should be a uh, goal. He follows on one interesting thing. I am followed by Mark, but he also exciting. follows 21,000 people. I do see that here. So, so a Shoggoth <laughs> is a Lovecraftian monster uh, from At the Mountains of Madness. So H.P. Lovecraft wrote this novella where, um, you know, to cut a long story short, Shoggoths are these artificial creatures that were created by a civilization. The civilization dies, but it was it died, it's implied, or it's strongly implied that the Shoggoths kind of rose up. They were no longer able to be controlled, and they overran these 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 things that were once controlling them. So to call himself a Shoggoth disciple, there's a flipping of the relationship there, because the Shoggoth is supposed to be a slave. It's supposed to be, and you've seen the famous image of like... He's a slave to the optimism, as I cut out for a second. There's the image of the kind of Lovecraftian monster with a with a mask on it, and that's supposed to be RLHF. So RLHF is supposed to be literally putting like a human face on this kind of otherworldly demonic thing that we couldn't possibly understand. And again, I think this idea that there's a there's a willingness to just embrace the fundamental indeterminacy and vagueness of what we're unleashing and just vibe on that. And just embrace it and just believe that whatever is being unlocked is worth unlocking. That's really like the 10-word summary of like this whatever 10,000-word essay that, that it is. And I think that's refreshing. I think that's honest. And I respect the fact that he recognizes, or actually Nate, I think you actually said it even better than he did, that, you know, these two camps that many of us have kind of felt, you know, subtly coerced into like aligning ourselves with either existential risk or tech ethics are really both in some ways or at least the toxic parts of them attempts to control a process that they are not actually in control of because no single person is in control of the process of technological development and disruption it is a property of capitalism it is a property of what these firms are doing and i think what mark is basically saying is embrace the process, lean into it. There is something valuable on the other side, even more than you can imagine. And instead, you know, much of the community for a long time, this might be changing now, has been stuck in a paradigm where academically informed communities have been trying to create semantics for slowing down and that process and critiquing it either by critiquing it or by setting limits on what can be done. And in fact, that's just not really the nature of what we're engaged in. So I think the fact that he's being honest about that is quite, um, I enjoyed that, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like the framing of saying that we are building things first rather than critiquing others' work first. 
is very realistic in how technology will be built. Change of topic slightly. How do you feel about him naming a bunch of patron saints that are... Yeah. A lot of them are deceased. <laughs> this was actually... There's a mix of, like, deceased people and, like, pseudo-synonymous um, Twitter accounts, which is... Like, like, what? Those are, like, people that he likes, I'm guessing, in history. <laughs> it's fascinating. I like that it's alphabetical. I like that if you just read their work of these people, you too will become a techno-optimist. Um, I yeah. like I like that it's so alphabetical that we start with Twitter handles and then progress to the A, B, <laughs> C. If you look at these people, I know some of these people, like, like it's hilarious to me. I mean, yeah, Brad DeLong is. Wait, I know. I mean, he's a professor at Berkeley. He's an economics. He he quotes him earlier in the essay. He has a, a book called Slouching Towards Utopia, and he sort of appreciative appreciatively cites it. Um, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a list of people who, and then yeah, you also get David David Friedman, and then David Ricardo. David Ricardo was a student of Adam Smith in like the like early 19th century. So it's just a very interesting eclectic list of yeah, Friedrich Hayek, Friedrich Nietzsche. I think we're going to be getting off a little bit on like the Friedrichs and just like comparing across different like times and contexts. John Galt is not a real person, right? John Galt is a fictional character in the novel Atlas Shrugged. Uh, who right? I'm, this is great. This says so much about this piece. Uh, he's immediately followed by John von Neumann, who was a real person who uh, was involved in the Manhattan Project. Well, and Michael then, needs to come on the. Yeah, Michael's going to come on and give his von Neumann lecture. It's not what you think it is. It's if you're listening. It's a still. very it's a powerful list. Yeah, and did we get? Sorry, did we get? Uh, or yeah, of course Richard Feynman is here. He also appreci appreciatively quotes Richard Feynman earlier uh, in in this essay. Yeah, like some of these are very reasonable. I mean, sure, but I think, oh, Pareto is here. Yeah, so Pareto, so here's, I, I feel like I'm obligated to say this. I don't, I didn't want this to be the focus, so it's not the focus, but I need to say it. This is, in some ways, there are crypto-fascist themes in this essay. Um, there's a lot of communist baiting, uh, which is fine, but there's, a, there's another ideology opposite to that that's also, in my view, pretty bad, and much of this essay is informed by and heavily borrows from the rhetoric of what, what were called the futurists, who were kind of in some ways the intellectual vanguard for 20th century fascism, uh, specifically in Italy, Germany, and other parts of continental Europe. Uh, that includes Pareto. So we most, Nate, you probably know him because of the Pareto frontier, Pareto curve kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Pareto also was a very prominent supporter of Mussolini. And uh, at the same time, he was developing his economic tools. And, you know, there's strong reason to think that those are not entirely uncorrelated phenomena. So basically, accelerationism in whatever kind of moment it takes off as, a, as an ideology has these uncomfortable relationships with like, what are you accelerating out of? And what are you accelerating into? There's, there's always disagreement on those things, right? Because we can only talk about reality. And so some people talk about it differently. So whenever you're embracing scale and making things scalar for the sake of doing so, you better be damn sure that everything that everyone agrees is good uh, is included in the thing that's accelerating if you really want them to be on board. Unfortunately, I don't think there's any period of history where that has really been reliably true. 
So that's sort of where I I struggle to really follow where this essay truly wants to take us. And I do think there's this uncomfortable, we've seen this, of course, in in AI safety and effective altruism, the way in which uh, certain fringe parts of those communities have indulged in, you know, frankly, kind of like pseudo-eugenists arguments uh, derived from like, you know, how it is they consider certain populations worth investing in, in terms of certain resources and whatnot. Um, and I think that there are certain notes that I do detect in this essay along those lines. That being said, it's still worth taking seriously and reading because Nate, as you mentioned, some of these names are reasonable. Some of these names are interesting. It's the potpourri of names together that gives me pause. Yeah, I think that's a kind of good place to end it. If you had, uh, like, yeah, I think this is a good recap. It's something that we're going to see a lot more and more. It's kind of unclear where fringe groups and kind of like the long tail is actually going to contribute to the AI narrative. And this is encouraging all of those people to kind of step up and partake. Like, very interesting to see where that lands and if it is just companies that do this and how scaling works out. And if anyone, like what actually, who references this in the future and how long this kind of bad of accelerationism actually sticks around. It it doesn't have any real grounding other than vibes. So we'll see how long that sticks around. And thanks for listening again. As always, reach out if you have any questions or deep concerns that are unaddressed in the AI community. And have a good one out there, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye for now. <laughs>